Hello everybody, it's Josh, and for this week's Select, I chose our surprisingly interesting June 2017 episode on food fads. This episode has everything you're looking for in a food fads episode. TV dinners, Opran, thrills, chills, spills. It's an odd, good episode, so I hope you enjoy it. Welcome to Stuff You Should Know, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, and welcome to the podcast. I'm Josh Clark with Charles W. Chuck Bryant, Jerry, Jerome, Roland, and Frank the Chair. Oh, Frank. He's been here the whole time. He just keeps quiet most, mostly. Yeah, I don't have my hat on today, though, so we're, we're one I know, what down. gives? I don't know. You know, I'm growing the hair out, so I thought I'd just let it flow. I noticed. It looks good. <laughs> well, Why are you yeah. growing it out? I don't know. It just sort of started happening. Then I was like, my brother's got good hair. His is longer. Yeah. I'm always trying to be more like him. Uh, Plus, can't have a butt cut with short hair. Yeah. Plus, I mean, I've had the same short, spiky hair for like 15 years. Mm -hmm. Time to mix it up. I know, man. When I started growing mine out, I was like, what am I doing? What's with this cue ball crap? I'm so tired of all (laughs) this. Let me just see what what it looks like, you know, with a... um, What's that quarterback's name? Uh, Joe Theismann. No. Joe Theismann. No. Uh, Terry Bradshaw. No. Well, you know, the one. Uh, oh, Randall Cunningham. No. Tom Brady. Oh. Tom Brady. <laughs> Despite your harassment, I still figured it out. What about Tom Brady? You want his hair? I have his hair, buddy. Mm, I don't know about that. I do. <laughs> Me and Tom Brady know. Uh, Chuck. Yes. Did you grow up on TV dinners at all? No. Really? No, my mom is was and is a great cook, so she wouldn't have that. I see, I see. Wow. Well, I did. I grew up on TV dinners. <laughs> and usually when a TV dinner appeared, uh-huh. seriously, you did miss out. They were pretty amazing when you're like six, seven years old. Oh, I've had them. When you were six or seven? No, I, I had them like in college. <laughs> oh, okay. So, so okay. So you understand the magic of a TV dinner, right? Sure. All right. Imagine that as like a six-year-old. Oh, I'm sure it was magical. Right? Yeah. All of your foods in like a different little compartment. Yeah. A brownie just staring at you, uh-huh. waiting. Like just, just wait, just wait, buddy. Yeah, yeah. Um, when you're six, it's just even better. And when I was six. If I would get a TV dinner, it meant that my parents were, like, going to do something, right? They were going to play bridge or something like that. Right. So it was, like, a special night. Hitting like, a key I'd party. Probably, yeah, exactly. <laughs> right. I'd probably get to stay up late or there'd be some babysitter or whatever. Um, it was always just kind of a special thing when TV dinners made an appearance. My parents never did anything together. <clears throat> oh, they never, like... They never played cards or... No, man. I rarely had babysitters. I rarely... I don't remember having babysitters. There was always one of them there? Yeah. Oh, maybe they didn't trust you. No, they didn't like each other. <laughs> oh, I got you. Well, uh, they, they may have really enjoyed key parties. Well, plus... Uh, yeah, you never know. Um, I had... Uh, I have a sister that's six years older, though, so... Oh, yeah. Uh, Built-in babysitter. Yeah, but they still didn't do a lot. I think I remember, I can literally just think of a few times. They like went to an Olivia Newton-John concert once. Mm-hmm. Uh, They've got a pretty good track record so far. My mom went and saw Elvis, but not with my dad. 
Wow. Uh, on that last tour, too, man. Oof. The, uh, I think they called that the Jumpsuit Integrity Tour. <laughs> the, hold on a second. <laughs> Let me catch my breath. Too. Yeah. Anyway, they didn't. Uh, what an undignified ending. Yeah, they didn't. They didn't do much stuff together. So I didn't get a lot of TV dinners. I didn't get a lot of. Hey, there's just throw it in and warm it up. My mom was kind of. Yeah. Always cooking for us. Yeah, yeah. No, my mom cooked a lot too. But now that I'm older and look back, I'm like, oh, that was a pretty convenient meal. Like you know, she was an ER nurse for Pete's sake. You know? Oh yeah. She had weird hours and stuff. Sure. So, um, but she was a great mom. She raised me very well, as everybody knows. It's a well-known <laughs> fact. So, with TV dinners in particular, though, I have a certain amount of nostalgia for them. Sure. But apparently, like, America as a whole has a bit of nostalgia for TV dinners. There's a TV dinner in the Smithsonian, for Pete's sake. Yeah. And that's, like, America's greatest repository of nostalgia. For sure. You know? Yeah, uh... So I think we should take people on a delightful tour of the history of this wonder. Of TV dinners? <laughs> yeah. I, I, you sound like you're uh, not so sure. No, no, no. I am sure. I was just joking around. I was trying to set okay. it up as some, you know, magical uh, experience that everyone's about to have. But oh, I feel like that's ingrained in it. So as the story goes, uh, Swanson, C.A. Swanson and Sons was and is a leader in the frozen food industry. Mm-hmm. And um, whether or not this is legend, who knows, but it's a great story, was that uh, one Thanksgiving, they had too much turkey on their hands post-Thanksgiving. Yeah, to the tune of something like 250 tons of turkey that they didn't sell. They yes, overestimated. Which is so sad, you know? Yeah, for those, those turkeys, turkeys are like, <laughs> thanks for nothing. Uh, yeah, like we so wanted to give our life as a meal. Right. Now we're just on a train. (laughs) Well, yeah, that's what they did. So the story goes, they had about, they loaded up, they couldn't store it. They didn't have enough room and no freezer room uh, to store all this turkey. So they put it on a frozen train or a refrigerated train car. The Polar Express. It's called in the industry. And the trick to this thing is, is in order for that train to stay refrigerated, it's got to keep moving. And so they basically were just running this turkey all over the country to keep it frozen and cold. Right. It's like that one movie um, set in the future with uh, Tilda Swinton, where like the train never stops oh, and like, yeah, all yeah. of society's on the train. Yeah, that It's was like great. that, but with frozen turkeys. <laughs> that was a good movie. So it's like that cross between that and speed. Yes. Like, so if the train ever stops, it's going to lose refrigeration. <laughs> if it loses refrigeration, the turkeys all go bad. So there's this... Do you remember that Simpsons? <laughs> Which one? When Homer's trying to describe uh, or think of the name of the movie Speed, he's <laughs> yeah. like, "It's about a about a bus. If its speed goes down and it can't speed up, and he says it like that many times, and he goes, <laughs> I think it's called the bus that wouldn't slow down, <laughs> or that couldn't slow down.' Yeah, I remember that one. Very funny line. Um, but this was real life, Chuck. This wasn't a cartoon or a joke. No." Half a million pounds of turkey on a train, and if, if it stopped, it would spoil. What are so, you laughing at, Simpsons? To, no, the no. idea <laughs> that this actually happened. Oh, I know. It's so insane to me. So apparently the Swanson brothers, Clark and, um, oh, what was the other brother's name? Gilbert. No, Gilbert. I wanted to say Clark and Gable. But Clark and Gilbert <laughs> Swanson said, 
all right, employees, we need you to put your heads together and come up with an idea. So they had, again, this is the legend, they had an employee contest where um, whoever could come up with what to do with all this turkey, uh, I guess would just be employee of the month or something like that. Um, And all the while, this contest is going on in the Swanson Company. There's a train out there in the the United States of America just circling endlessly because it can't stop or else the turkeys will go bad. Until the Swinton wins. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, so there was a salesman named uh, Jerry Thomas, G-E-R-R-Y, not like our own J-E-R-I. Right. Which no one ever gets right. Um, This is the part I don't get. He traveled from Nebraska to Pittsburgh Mm -hmm. to where Pan American Airways had their kitchens. Right. Because they were testing uh, single compartment uh, foil tray meals that they would serve to people. And I guess he couldn't envision what that might look like unless he went there in person. Right. And steal one. Well, yeah. So, the, yeah, and the, it was a single compartment, right? So basically it was just a tray that you put a bunch of food on. There were, like, different compartments in the tray. And he's like, I got to get my hands on one of these. Right. This is innovation. <laughs> uh, yeah, I don't understand that either, which is why his story smells a little fishy to me. Agreed. Um, but this this guy, Jerry Thomas, is the he's, – he's known as the inventor, basically, of the TV dinner, right? Yeah. So he comes back to the Swanson brothers and says, I got it. I've, I've driven from Pittsburgh back home uh, to wherever the Swanson company is located. Where am I? He famously said. Um, and he uh, said, and I've added two more compartments into this tray. So now it's a three <laughs> compartment tray. And he said, I, know, I drew two lines right, in this I tray. Know, I know what to do with the turkey now. We're going to basically sell it as a frozen Thanksgiving dinner. And they said, you're employee of the month, Jerry. Yeah. They say, look, you got your your potatoes and gravy here. You got your peas here. You got your turkey here. None of it touches each other. I'm a genius. I'm Jerry Thomas. So this coalesced with the another uh, uh, craze, which was television. And in 1953... Uh, there were 33 million households with televisions, and um, it was really, I mean, there had been other people uh, that had been doing this before. Quaker State Foods uh, in 1949 had something in the supermarket, a frozen meal called no. uh, under, oh, geez. I know, the under. most, the most one of, not, I don't want to say the most, one of the most offensive brand names ever. Yeah, the One-Eyed Eskimo label. That's that's terrible. So they were selling those in supermarkets, and then in uh, previous to that, even yeah, uh, the uh, strato plates uh, from Maxon were being served on airplanes, but not mm-hmm. as a retail food. Right. So it had been done before. So the creation of the TV dinner. Well, wait, don't 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 leave out Jack Fisher. Who? Jack Fisher. Oh, oh right. What was that one called? Frigid dinners. Yes. But they're the most depressing meal yeah, ever. Because they were served in bars? Yeah, they were served <laughs> in a bar. So you didn't have to leave to go home to eat dinner. You could just stay and keep drinking. Oh, man. There were some bars in LA, in Los Feliz, when I lived there, that uh, around 2 a.m., the uh, tamale guy would come around. So, okay, that's different. Oh, dude, it was the best. I'll I mean, bet. there were legit handmade tamales. And at one fifty-five was the perfect time to be dropping in to the drawing room, you know? Oh, yeah, nice. Anyway, 
the the creation of the TV dinner was not so much uh, that it was a brand new thing, but it was mm-hmm. a it was a marketing uh, success story because that, the TV they thought if we can build this thing around the television, then we've got something on our hands. Right, that was the key. The TV, making it a TV dinner, right? Because all of a sudden, it was like, hey, everybody loves TV. Plus, this is something I didn't realize. It added a certain amount of, like, cachet to the TV dinner. Right. Because if you had a TV dinner, it meant that you had a TV. Yeah. And if you had a TV, you were probably upper middle class. Sure. At the time, right? So, the idea of having a TV or a dinner to go with your TV really appealed to, to Americans. And even to this day, it was such a great marketing coup, I guess, that um, people still call these, like almost any frozen entree or frozen meal a TV dinner. Yeah. Even though it was 1962 when Swanson stopped calling their products that. They still made the products. They just stopped calling them TV dinners. Oh, yeah. Every, everybody else kept calling them TV dinners. Yeah, you were eating these in the 80s, like 20 years after they, that brand went away. Mm-hmm. Still calling them TV dinners. And eating them on TV trays. This is another thing you oh, missed yeah. out on, Chuck. Did, no, did no, you have yeah. those? Sure. So that was the whole the whole point of a TV tray. was It was a foldable individual table that you would open up in front of yourself and eat your TV dinner on while you were sitting on the couch so you could watch TV most efficiently while you were eating dinner. Yeah, now they call that the coffee table. You just stoop over a little bit. <laughs> right. Or the sink. What? Yeah, eating over the sink. I don't know what that is. That's a depressing way to eat. <laughs> so these were actually called, that was the brand, Swanson's TV brand frozen dinner, and they're... Uh, their big concept with the box, if you look it up on uh, on the internet, was it looked like it, it was designed like a little television. The box was it, the t- the dinner itself was like the screen on the screen, and then it had the little dials on the bottom left and right corner, and uh, you know it looked like a little TV. Right. And it was ninety eight cents in nineteen fifty four, and they sold a ton of them. Yeah, they apparently. Um so again, remember, all this came from a bunch of turkey that was about to spoil. So Swanson Which is ordered a really gross start to an industry. Sw- Swanson ordered like five thousand of them initially to be made, and they hired a, a small battalion of of um, ladies in aprons and ice cream scoops and spatulas to yeah. assemble these things. Right, and they just had them go right down the assembly line, and they sold five thousand just almost immediately and apparently in the first year um that they were sold they sold like uh 10 million of them wow so they came out with them in 1954 and by the the end of the first full year of production which i guess would be 1955 they'd sold 10 million of them so they went from initially ordering 5,000 of them to selling 10 million of them in a year so it just hit america just right you know well yeah and it was at a time where uh women were starting to want uh kind of re-enter the workforce gave them time that they could still get that hot meal on the table because that was their job back then right Right, it gave women a really great opportunity to provide a stark contrast to the, your husband's mother. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, there were a bunch of men who were like, "This isn't good enough. I want my wife to cook from scratch, like my mom, Doctor Freud." And if they could be like my mom <laughs> in a lot of other ways, that'd be awesome. 
<laughs> Would it kill her to wear a hairnet and rollers? Yeah, so the, apparently it didn't delight all men because uh, they weren't on board. But um, Would it kill her to dress me up in a diaper? <laughs> we should do an episode on that sometime. That's a thing. Uh, oh, I thought you were about to say on Freud, but on men wearing diapers as adults? Mm-hmm. Yeah, as for like, I think it's called diaper play. For sex play, but but it's it's diaper centric. Yeah, we should do a podcast on that. <laughs> Just I, that. Well, we can include it in like maybe a fetish one. How about that? All right. Okay. Wow, that took a weird turn. All of a sudden, <laughs> it really did. Jeez, uh, you got anything else on TV dinners? That's a good way to end it. I think. Nope. <laughs> uh, should we take a break? Yep. All right. I'm going to go change my diaper, and <laughs> we'll talk about uh, gelatin right after this. So Chuck, you were saying that um, in the last one that uh, that the TV dinner hit just right yes. and, and struck struck America in part because women were starting to enter the workforce, right? And, and what, that was partially the result of World War II. World War II also changed things as far as food and food consumption and food packaging goes. And that apparently at the end of World War II, there were a lot of companies that had gone all in into supplying the troops food. Yes. And were making pretty great money, but apparently were basically caught with a large amount of supply um, when the war ended. And they said, well, if we don't figure out a way to get non-wartime America, the regular American consumer, to buy this stuff, we're going to go out of business. We're overextended, basically. And so food companies, I guess individually and on the whole, taught America to basically eat what had prior to that point been considered field rations. Yeah, like like Spam, if you remember that podcast, that kind of was where that whole movement was born. Yep, Spam, condensed soup, um, dehydrated stuff, freeze-dried stuff, like all of this came out of basically an overstock of World War II food supplies that were intended for troops and were kind of repackaged and rearranged to be served to the American consumer. Yeah. And part of that also was that same thing that TV dinner struck, which which was convenient, you know, like, hey, your your husband still wants a meal and your your family still expects you to be the one to to cook for him. Um but now you have to work, so what are you going to do? Well, we have we have something helpful for you, and it's called convenience food. And one of the big convenience foods that came out of the post-war era, but really it started to gather steam before then, was gelatin. Yeah, specifically Jello as the name brand. But uh, gelatin, the word, is from Latin uh, gelatus, meaning jellied, froze. And uh, it was first used in Egypt, but uh, was really first used in cooking in France. And, um, you know, I I think most people know this by now, but if you don't, um, gelatin is a a protein. And it's it's produced from collagen from boiling animal bones. Yeah, or hooves. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it's a... It's glutinous, basically, and it can go one of two ways, I think, depending on what you do with it. You can turn it into glue, 
or you can turn it into food. <laughs> yeah, that's never a good start. No, it really is. You know? Yeah, and uh, a guy from the, I think, the 17th century in France, what was his name? Pepin? Yeah. Someone Pepin. Denis Papin. Right, uh, who may or may not be related to Jacques Pepin, yeah. who is great in French. He's also a cook. Um, he was the first person to mention it in writing, I believe. Uh, and then it just kind of sat there for a while until the 19th century when I guess people were aware of gelatin and that you could use it as a food, but it was extraordinarily gourmet. Like the average person was not making jello at home. It was very time consuming. Yeah. You, you had to start from scratch and boil animal bones to start the process of gelatin. It was the exact opposite of how we think of gelatin today, which is instantaneous, right? Sure. So easy. Yeah. So in the 19th century, um, there, there, this guy named Peter Cooper uh, figured out a way to turn gelatin into a powder form, a dehydrated gelatin powder. Um, and it went absolutely nowhere for 50 years. And I was surprised to find this out. I knew gelatin was pretty old, but it's, it's interesting how it's just kind of moved along in these very slow little fits and starts. Yeah, like no one would give up on it. No. It was interesting. Which is weird because it's really disgusting yeah. if you think about it. It should have been given up on. Yeah, and it never was. It's a very bizarre invention. It almost makes you feel like there was some sort of divine hand guiding gelatin <laughs> along in its progress. Uh, yeah, so later on uh, in 1894, a guy named Charles Knox uh, kind of revolutionized things when he found a, uh, came up with a process that resulted in a dried sheet of gelatin. And he hired salesmen to go door to door to show women like, hey, you can add liquid to these sheets. You can make uh, desserts. You can make aspics, which is a really gross word, I think. It is. It's not, it's pretty, it's a gross thing. It's a savory gelatin. Yeah, which we'll get to that. But uh, a couple of years later, uh, Rose Knox, which was that his wife, I guess? Yes. uh, Published a book called Dainty Desserts, uh, which is a book of recipes and uh, things were kind of moving along a little bit. Um, then in 1895, uh, there was a cough syrup c- company in New York called Pearl, uh, Pearl B. Wait? Mm-hmm. Is that what it's called? Pearl Wait. Okay. Was Pearl, the w- cough syrup. W-A-I-T. Right. But they weren't selling much cough syrup, so they said, all right, let's get into the food business. And uh, the wife, uh, whose name was May said, you know, let me add some fruit syrups to this stuff. <clears throat> and actually, she's the one who named it Jell-O. She came up with that name. Yeah. But they didn't succeed either and sold that <laughs> to their neighbor, uh, Francis, is that the whole name, Orator Francis Woodward? Yes. For 450 bucks, uh, this person purchased the name and name brand Jell-O. Right. And he almost fell victim to the curse of Jell-O as well, right? He could do nothing with it either. Um, Despite some early attempts, he apparently tried to sell it to uh, his supervisor at work for 35 bucks, even though he paid 450 to it for it. So at some point, I guess he decided to give it another go. And he hired a bunch of uh, traveling salesmen, sent them out to fairs, uh, community gatherings, that kind of stuff, and said, teach the people how to make the jello. And this time it started to stick, actually. Jell-O, Jell-O kind of um, hit 
at just the right time finally. Or I should say the world was finally ready for Jell-O. Part of it had to do with um, refrigeration. Yeah, for sure. Once, you know, refrigeration is key for Jell-O, as we all know. Right. And uh, once those technologies were developed, it kind of, uh, well, it formed, uh, literally. <laughs> it all congealed. And, and figuratively. Uh, and then once advertising started taking over, like in the mid-1930s, uh, General Foods um, had a very famous radio ad from Jack Benny, mm-hmm. uh, the J-E-L-L-O tag, uh, which really kind of helped push things along as well. Yeah, and I, I noticed that at some point they started dabbling with, with other flavors. I think originally they tried strawberry, raspberry, orange, and lemon, mm-hmm. right? Um, and then they tried chocolate, and they, they apparently chocolate didn't go over very well. So they released well, as a pudding, it. though, right? No, first they just released it as chocolate jello. Oh, God. That's pretty awful. And then they thought, oh, maybe we should add milk instead of water. And yeah. that's when they came up with jello pudding and they re released chocolate. And that, that spurred like a whole pudding line, including something I grew up on, which is butterscotch jello pudding. Oh, yeah. Man, that was so good. Except you, you couldn't, you had to get the skin off. The skin was no good, but everything under the skin was great. What, what's the skin? It was just like a, on, on top? It was a very, it was the tougher layer uh, on top, yeah. But uh, if you just scraped it off, you had some nice pudding underneath. Uh, Emily still loves the uh, the the brown, the chocolate jello pudding. Yeah, it's good. Yeah, she'll make a parfait, like you know. Oh, nice! A little little pudding, a little whipped cream, yeah. little pudding, little whipped cream. She knows how to live. Yeah, she does. It's a special <laughs> night that happens about three times a year, and I'm like, nice. oh boy, it's parfait yep. time. Uh, so in the 1950s, uh, supposedly the Jello shot uh, with alcohol was invented by uh, this really interesting guy named Tom Lehrer, who um, he was a mathematician and a singer-songwriter. Mm-hmm. Who I, I looked into him; he he did song parodies about math and chemistry. I guess he was like the Jonathan Colton of his day, <laughs> uh, as far as I can tell. And he was also in the army. And to get around alcohol restrictions, uh, as the story goes, he claims he invented the Jello shot. Which I've never had. Uh, what? I've never had a Jello shot. Wow. Well, you're not missing much. They're pretty gross. Well, Jello. I can't stand Jello. Well, even if you do, even if you like or are ambivalent to Jello, it's it's just gross. Does it taste like? Yeah, it's tequila it's Jello a, or whatever. Yes, it's a very obnoxious taste. You're supposed to use like I think you replace half of the water with whatever yeah. liquor you're using. Usually people use vodka. Well, yeah. It really just stands out in a, in a noxious way. Gross. By the way, Tom Lehrer, I thought that name sounded familiar. He um, he is pretty great. He wrote this one um, song called The Old Dope Peddler. Uh-huh. And 2 Chains actually, um, you know the rapper 2 Chains from Atlanta? Uh, no. Yes, you do. Oh, wait. Was he our guy? Which was he guy? the guy that judged that... Uh, no, no, Car that thing was, with um, oh man, who was that guy? That was Young Jock. Oh, right, right, right. No, 2 Chains is, he's huge, man. Um, he uh, did a song where he sampled the old dope peddler and he, I guess, wrote to Tom Lehrer to ask for permission to sample it. And Tom Lehrer had this awesome, famous response. So just read up on that. What was, did he let him use it? Yes. Oh, great. So he's the opposite of Don Henley. And it, <laughs> probably Henley every single way, yeah. <laughs> Yeah. Uh, but jello shots yes. are gross. Jello shots are gross. So jello is speeding along. It's uh it's taking over America. 
Um, and then they decided to come out with the, these savory lines, and it became, uh, and this was this post-World War II thing that you were talking about, <clears throat> when, um, I, I guess they did, what, there was this great article you sent, Making and Eating the 1950s Most Nauseating Jello-Soaked Recipes. Mm-hmm, from by, Collector Week. Yeah, Hunter, Hunter Oatman Stanford, and uh, they did this interview, and... Um, with Ruth Clark. Yeah, Ruth Clark, uh, basically... It's a really good interview, and she talks about kind of this savory movement that took over, and not only with Jello, but the fact that it was a time in America where, and if you look back, it's so great to look back at these old ads and these old recipe books, <clears throat> that <laughs> it was a time where you would, the goal was to have a dinner party with this big, flashy, uh, experimental and unique centerpiece, food centerpiece. Made of Jello. Well, it could be mold. all kinds of things. We're talking about the hot dog tree, right? Yeah, there, and there, there, it could be a lot of different stuff. And I think that's what Ruth Clark does. She recreates this stuff, right? Yeah. And her poor husband has to eat it. <laughs> um, but a lot of those things were Jello molds. Oh yeah. And a lot of the reason why Jello molds were so weird and so popular is because Jello put so much time and effort into publishing cookbooks and the whole point oh, was all of these food companies wanted like all of their products to to be your entire meal yeah so they were putting these these random part like products that the food company made into some really weird configurations and they came up with some very odd jello molds in the 50s or 60s it was such a sad culinary time it was but the Ruth Clark makes a good point that that to the people at, at that time, like a, a really well thought out fancy Jello mold was as a centerpiece of so your gross. your table was like the pinnacle of classiness. Yeah, but we're talking about like a shaped mold with like uh, lamb shank and asparagus <laughs> inside of Jello. Yeah, a savory Jello that's like celery flavored. Oh, you're lucky if it was savory. The lime Jello is one of the most abused Jello flavors of all time. People would put tuna and stuff in uh, with the lime Jello. There's one called Perfection Salad that's coleslaw oh, yeah. <laughs> inside of lime Jello. Yeah. And what Ruth Clark pointed out was that gelatin apparently preserves food really well. And and that coleslaw that would have otherwise been inedible and runny after day three was still like crunchy after day five when it was put inside of a Jello mold. So it's gross. still gross. Yeah, and there's actually a great BuzzFeed article um, if you want to get an idea of what people were doing in the 50s, 60s, and 70s with Jello molds. It's called "17 Horrifyingly Disgusting Retro Gelatin Recipes," and they are gross, man. Like cottage cheese and salmon mold. Yeah. It. it- yeah. I mean, I hate Jello. Oh, man. This period. must be like your waking nightmare. I then. couldn't even look through it. You sent it to me, and I scrolled about halfway through and just deleted it. I threw my computer out the window. The best one I see is lime cheese salad. It's <laughs> it's lime Jello mixed with cottage cheese. Oh. And then into the center of the Jello mold, you put a seafood salad. Oh, my God. Sauerkraut mold. It just goes on and on, but it was a weird time. And again, Ruth Clark has a bunch of theories. She said she can't really answer exactly why jello molds were as big as they are, but she posits that uh, part of it was this idea that there were all these companies trying to get you to use their products, and th- these were just monstrosities that they came up with, and people fell for it. Oh, like canned salmon, canned tuna. 
in Jello. <laughs> right. My God. So that's Jello molds, man. Uh, where do you want to head next? Let's go to the crock pot. All right. <laughs> that was our, our crock pot travel song. First of all, I have a crock pot. Same here. And um, is yours actually crock pot or using it as a proprietary eponym? Uh, I don't think it is a crock pot brand pot. Yeah. It's a slow cooker. There you go. Um, and I forget to use it a lot, but when I remember, I'll go on a little crock pot binge where I'll cook you know, a few meals over the course of a few weeks mm-hmm. in a crock pot. And they're still great if you know how to how to use it and how to spice things up. For sure. You know? Apparently, at first, people didn't know. Because if you're cooking a recipe, say, um, it's like simmering, say, like a, a beef stew okay. on the stovetop. Yeah. That simmering action that it's going uh, undergoing, it, it does something different to the recipe than a crock pot does, even though it's the exact same recipe. Um, and so at first when crock pots came out, it was first introduced by Rival back in 1971. When crock pots first came out, um, they people were like, this, is, this, this dinner that it's making is really gross. It doesn't taste very good. It's bland. Yeah. And yet they still didn't stop using or buying crock pots. Well, and food was more bland back then. Well, we're talking the 70s. So by the 70s, I think it was they, people were using more spices than before. I think it was more bland in like the 40s and maybe the 50s. Yeah, but that one, yeah, you're probably right. But that one article we read said, you know, like an old recipe for chili would have like a teaspoon of chili powder or something. <laughs> right. And it's like all the food just sucked because right. they didn't realize like, no, man, you dump a bunch of that junk in there. So, well, you were saying back in the 40s or 50s, when TV dinners really hit, moms were starting to enter the workforce. In 1971, moms were really into the workforce. And so the idea of having a crock pot where you could make this meal in a one pot in the morning, throw it all in there, turn it on, and then come home at the end of the day and dinner was ready uh, and you still went to work and got everything you needed to get done done was so attractive that dis- that despite the fact that it made these meals that did not taste like they should um the people were still like i said they were still buying the crock pots and instead they started to f- look around to find tips for how to make these things taste better and actually a woman named uh what was her name Mabel yeah Mabel Hoffman Mabel Hoffman stepped into the fray and said Peace, peace, children. I've got this covered. Listen up. Yeah, she wrote a book called The Crockery Cookery, or Crockery Cookery, no the, and uh, it was a huge, huge hit. It was a New York Times bestseller. I believe she went on to sell about six million copies of this thing. <laughs> yeah. And um, I don't even think we've said that, you know, we said we you, you throw the food in there and cook it all day, but the whole idea is that you put a... a kind of a tight-fitting lid on there, and it, and it cooks at a very, very low heat all day long. Right. And then when you, when you get home from work eight hours later or something like that, it will, it will be done. You just serve and smile. Yeah, and thanks to Crockery Cookery, um, the Crock-Pot uh, in 1971 earned $2 million bucks. In 72, $10 million. 73, $23 million. And then eventually peaking mm-hmm. in 1975 at $93 million dollars worth of crock pots being sold. Yep. It was a genuine 
legit craze, food craze. And supposedly, Crock-Pot Cookery, the book, was um, America's sixth best-selling cookbook ever, right? Yeah. So this was like a legitimate craze. Crock-Pot cooking was a legitimate craze. But again, there was something compared to the same recipes on the stovetop as compared to a Crock-Pot. Um, there was something, it, it was, the, the flavor was just disappointing. So what Mabel Hoffman did was on a very tight deadline, um, create from scratch a book, I guess the world's first cookbook of slow cooker recipes. And she did it in her own kitchen with like 20 crock pots going all day, every day. Yeah, she had to. Testing all this stuff. And she figured out some of the keys to crock pot cooking, which was like you want to use way less liquid um, than you would use like on the stovetop because you have a lot less... um, Evaporation. The sure. crock pot keeps it in there, which is one reason why meat is so t- so tender in a crock pot or a slow cooker, um, because it just recirculates the 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 moisture. Yeah. Rather than allowing it to just evaporate, right? Yep. And then another thing she came up with was that when you um, when you use herbs into the recipe, you want to reserve some of them for right before the things finish cooking, so you can add it uh, like a pop of fresh flavor. Yes. So once she figured this out, crockpots just took off even more. Yeah, so she was, they were selling a bunch of crockpots. She was selling a bunch of cookbooks. Uh, and eventually she would said, hey, I, I really was on to something here. So she wrote uh, deep fry cookery, mm-hmm. uh, chocolate cookery. Uh, and these are 78, 79, um, 77, like kind of all in a row. Crepe cookery. And then eventually uh, in 1985, healthy, healthy crockery cookery (laughs) (laughs) i know and um the the person who who uh, interviewed her uh, later in life said that she was just this really great lady very humble and was super upfront about the fact that she like hey i hit something at the right time uh with the right book and it just sort of i kind of fell into this and it's been just like a wonderful thing for my life yeah it's really neat yeah she sounds like a pretty cool person so what's your what's your crock pot recipe Oh, geez, I don't know. Um, What's your favorite thing to cook? Well, usually some sort of, like, beef. Yeah? It just does such a such a good job, like, making a roast or something, you know? Okay. Um, but, yeah, I, 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 that's usually what I'm cooking when I cook in a crock pot is, uh, is beef. All right. Josh's crock pot, beef crock pot surprise. <laughs> right. With <laughs> aspic. Ugh. Uh, you want to take a break? Yeah, let's take a break, and we'll uh, finish up with a bit interesting bit on oat bran so chuck yes we finally arrived we're just going to go forward a few years The Wayback Machine is is in the shop, which is why I'm having to do it. Uh, To the 80s, man. And Oat Bran. Yes. I know that we differ on the interestingness of this one. I'm just fascinated by it. Really? I really am, man, because it's got it all. It's like, um, it's got the 80s. Okay. Um, Do you remember that SNL, the famous SNL um, ad for Colon Blow? I do. That was based on this. It came out of this this trend. Uh-huh. Um, has to do with studies, studies that contradict those studies. Yeah. Um, bad science reporting, the whole thing. Okay. I love it. 
oats. Oat bran. Yeah. It's very important. It is. So there was this huge trend in the 80s where anything that had to do with oat bran, you could sell a million units of a minute. Yes. Um, so much so that there was a 1990 article from Tulsa World that um, said that there were – no, I'm sorry. The L.A. Times article from 1990 said that there were over like 300 different items available in grocery stores at the time that touted on its label yeah. the fact that it had Oprah in it. People were nuts for it. Yes, they were. And this is uh – Largely due to some studies that came out that said that oat bran was kind of a miracle food for lowering uh, cholesterol. Right. And that was like back in the late 70s. And and I guess Quaker Oats took notice of those studies and they released a thing called Mother's Oat Bran. But they sent it straight to the hippies at the health food store and and didn't do anything about it. They just released a product and that was that. Yeah. And then Kellogg's came along and said, hey, you know what? What if we start telling people that our food can basically prevent cancer? Can we do that? And the lawyer said no, and the president of Kellogg said, well, we're doing it anyway. Who's going to stop us, Reagan? And Reagan said, no, I'm not going to stop you. That was a good Reagan. Thank you. (laughs) And so they said, um, okay, well, you eat our cereal and it will reduce cancer. And nothing happened. There was no blowback, despite the fact that this had been illegal for nearly a century. And then Quaker Oats partnered uh, with Chicago's Northwestern University and Linda Van Horn in 1986 uh, because they had a similar study about oat bran cutting cholesterol. Right. So they're starting to say, well, Kellogg didn't get in trouble. Let's try this ourselves. And they went out and they, they hired Wilford Brimley. You remember his ads? Yeah. I, uh, I think I told the story about working with him. Oh, yeah. Wasn't he like the antithesis of what? Yeah. His his persona was? Yeah, the word got around. They were like, this, you know, just it may be a short day because that's how it goes with him sometimes. That's <laughs> so funny. And I think it was. I think we wrapped it about half day because he was just like, I'm done. I'm cantankerous. Yeah. But in the meantime, when the cameras were rolling, he, he told everybody that eating Quaker Oprah was the right thing to do and it would cut your cholesterol. That's right. And then this book came out. So things are starting to build here for Oprah. And this book came out called The 8-Week Cholesterol Cure by a guy named Robert E. Kowalski. And it chronicled his the decline of his LDL, the bad cholesterol, um, just from eating an Oprah and diet. And that book became extraordinarily popular. Yeah. Supposedly it was the the one of the the greatest selling uh, self-help health books of all time. It just took off. Yeah. And then yet another thing happened, and this was the thing. This is like where the peak began. The um, I think the Journal of the American Medical Association, April 1988, published a study from the University of Maryland where these researchers found that, yeah, eating oat bran could really significantly lower your cholesterol. And not only that, it does it for a sixth of the price of the um, expensive cholesterol-lowering drugs. That's right. And people ate even more oat bran. That's right. The trend is developing. Can you see it? I think it's fully developed at this point. So everybody's going oat bran crazy. And one of the big things that, um, that they were doing was eating oat bran muffins. But these oat bran muffins were like loaded with fat and butter and eggs. And so they weren't actually doing anything yeah. to lower their cholesterol because the, the effects would be counteracted. Suckers. Right. 
But in the uh, in the meantime, people were still having fun eating lots of muffins and pretending they were really healthy. And then this Harvard study came out, and it basically said, you know what? Um, you're all fools. You're dummies. You know how it lowers your cholesterol? Because it keeps you from eating bacon and eggs. That's how you chumps. Well, yeah, and then that study itself was uh, was attacked because they only studied 20 people, um, which is not much of a study. It isn't. And the people who were on the oat brand diet were eating 20% more fat than the control group. It was a terrible study, almost like they wanted to take oat brand down a peg. Yeah. And it worked really well. It's basically the um, science reporting in major newspapers and the news services reported that oat brand was the greatest thing ever. And then they suddenly turned on it and said, oat brand is nothing. And everybody dropped oat brand. And the, if uh, if you read the stuff today, it's true. Oprah really does lower cholesterol. Sure, um, but it just got overhyped, right? Because of the eighties. That's the eighties for you. Yep, that's food fads, man. You got anything else? I got nothing else. All right, man. Well, uh, if you want to know more about food fads, you can type those words into the search bar at HowStuffWorks.com. Yeah. Search bar. You're not going to get much, though. (laughs) No. (laughs) You may want to just look elsewhere, but still. uh, Since I said that, it's time for listener mail. Uh, I'm going to call this MS response, and I would like to say that we got many, many uh, great responses from our MS episode, a lot Mm -hmm. of warm thoughts from people about uh, my friend Billy and yeah. just uh, it was just really great people with MS people who had people in their family we heard from doctors and nurses and that's just ended up being a really good episode yeah so we appreciate that feedback yep. uh, but this is from uh, anonymous listener <laughs> uh, hey I've been listening to your show for a couple of years now I want to thank you for making my commute more engaging I listened to the show on MS on my ride home and like to commend you for how well you handle the topic I was diagnosed a few years ago at 19 uh, luckily, my diagnosis was quick due to the severity of my first relapse. And I feel like your podcast would have helped me understand and cope with the diagnosis in a more constructive manner than my initially trying to self-destruct. Uh, since then, I'm continually uh, learning about the latest research in history. I love that you discussed uh, Ledwina and Augustus Deste, as a lot of the time uh, they don't come up in the mainstream discourse of MS. Didn't really know any history until I wrote an undergrad history paper on MS last year and found reading through bits of Deste's journal to be the closest I've ever felt with a historical person. Uh, you mentioned that uh, many tend to keep their diagnosis a secret. I'll admit that with me, it's a need-to-know basis, and I rarely openly talk about it outside of family, friends, and the support system. Main, uh, my support system mainly because of the stigma of the disease and that the assumptions circulating uh, MS tend to negatively alter people's perceptions of myself as an individual. Have had people approach me when I start limping thanks to fatigue and a permanently numb foot, but I'll brush it off and tell them there's nothing to worry about or it's an old injury. However, I think with time it's getting easier to talk about thanks to resources like your podcast that are well-researched and accurate. I cringe whenever someone tells me there's an easy homeopathic solution to my ailments, and sometimes I struggle with discussing MS in an accessible way that doesn't solely uh, rely on the clinical pathological understanding of it, and I will be sure in the future to redirect people to this episode. Uh, thank you so much for sharing, and uh, we said we keep this anonymous because uh, this person... <laughs> that was close. Yeah, this person said, you know, that's great that you read it, but uh, if uh, if they're keeping it quiet for now, we don't want to, you know, broadcast the name. Sure. Yeah. Nice. 
So thank okay. you, Anonymous. Yeah, thanks, Anonymous. <laughs> uh, if you want to get in touch with us, like Anonymous did, uh, you can tweet to us at SYSK Podcast. You can hang out with Chuck on Facebook.com slash Stuff You Should Know or at Charles W. Chuck Bryant on Facebook. You can send us both an email. Uh, we promise to be confidential at uh, StuffPodcast at HowStuffWorks.com. And as always, join us at our home on the web, StuffYouShouldKnow.com. Stuff You Should Know is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows.